Good evening. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of James in the second chapter. We're going to read a few verses in just a moment of James 2. Appreciate your presence here this evening. Those that might be joining us online, we thank you for your presence also. In the book of James in the second chapter, and beginning in verse 10, James says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What do those verses mean to you? Particularly about maybe one doesn't commit adultery, but he commits a murder. He is a lawbreaker. What does that mean to us? And secondly, why did James put it here in this place in his epistle? What's his reason for putting it there? And thirdly, what can we make application of in other places even of this idea that James puts forth in this place? I've told you before that I used to just despise those achievement tests because they'd ask me to read something and then give a title to it, and I'd give a title, and they didn't like my titles. I thought it was grand when I began writing bulletins and and just, I could entitle them anything that I wanted to. And I have to tell you, I'm not real sure about the title of this lesson, but if you look at verse 10, he says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. So if you want a title for the lesson, I'm going to suggest that it might be called Stumbling Over God's Word. And if we answer these questions that we talked about, why and what is James trying to tell us in James 2, 9 through 11, and how it fits into his book and his epistle, and then how can we apply it not only to the things that James wrote, but some other things about us. That's basically the lesson this evening. And so let's start by just asking, what does James mean when he talks about that if we stumble in one thing, we're guilty of all, and if we don't commit adultery, but we commit a murder, we become a transgressor of the law. It seems to me that he's trying to get us to understand that we can't pick and choose which commandments that we want to keep. That we are supposed to keep all of the commandments. And whether we do it deliberately or just by accident, that we choose one that we're not going to keep and ignore another, especially if we do it willingly, then what he's trying to tell us is we're lawbreakers. We need to realize that we can't pick and choose from God's Word, but that all that he says is important to us. In fact, let me give you two scriptures that I think will tell us that this is what uh, we have to do. 
that we have to keep all of God's word or be trying to keep all of God's word. We can't just divide it and say, well, I'm going to keep this, I'm not going to keep that, or be real careful to keep some, but not so careful to keep others. Back in the book of Psalms, in the 119th chapter, and you remember that song deals with the word of God. It's a long song, and over and over he tells us various things about the word of God. But in Psalms 119 and verse 160, the writer said, The entirety of your word is truth. Now, the your word is God's word. And he says, The entirety of that word is truth. You can't just pick out some and say, Well, this is right and something else is not. He says, You have to look at the whole word in order to to know truth as it is, and to really understand the truth. Uh, Sometimes people are bad about just picking a verse, and they don't look at the context of it. They don't look to see anything else. They just take that verse, and it just means what it says, they say. I think Reagan had a good lesson last week about, I think it was last week, on qualifying statements that you have to look at the context. And sometimes there's a statement made and you have to look at whatever else has been said at that time in order to really understand the Scriptures. But if you want to know the the law of God, if you want to know what He requires of us, you're going to have to know the entirety of it. Because that law is written to lead us and guide us And any time we break one of those laws, we become a transgressor of God's law. And the psalmist is saying, we've got to make sure that we realize the entirety of the law. Think about Matthew, the fourth chapter. This is the temptation of Jesus. And you remember that Satan had tried to get him to change and turn stones into bread. And and Jesus answered by saying, man shall not live by bread alone. Then he says, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so again, you can't just pick something and say, okay, I'll pick that word, and and that just tells me everything I know or I want to know, and, and end up right with God. He's saying we've got to keep in mind every word. And how would you how would you separate them? How would you read one verse and say, well, Uh, That's a good verse. I need to keep that. But read something else and say, well, but I don't really see the importance of that. I would remind you in the psalmist, he said, the entirety of your word, God's word, all of this is God's word. And if you turn over to the book of James in the fourth chapter in verse 12, James would say there is one lawgiver. And basically what that means to us is that every law came from God. And so how is it that I could pick one, using James' example, and say, well, I'm not going to commit adultery, but I don't see the big deal of murder. Now, maybe we don't think that, that we'll get to that point, but think about our world today and how frivolous some are with the, the idea of life. Uh, they don't care about life. But God's the author of, right, of life, and how is it that we can pick something and say, well, I, that's important to me but then turn around and choose anything else and just say, but that's not. 
And so it seems to me that what James is trying to tell us in this verse, or these verses are telling us, is that all of the law of God is important. And I need to try to keep all of the law of God. And I certainly don't have the right just to say, well, I'll, I'll do this because I want to, but I'm not going to do that. You know, these things show our attitude. I remember hearing the illustration long ago, even before I started preaching, about the man that told his son, here's how I want you to lay out the property. That I want you to put the house over here, and down south of that we'll put the barn, and then you put the well over here toward the north. And so the son put the house where the father said, put the barn where he wanted, but he decided that the well would be somewhere else better. And the father approached him and said, you, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And he said, well, I just changed one thing. And the father said, no, you showed you really didn't care what I was saying. You put the barn where it did because that's where it suited you. And you put the house where you, I told you because that's what suited you. But the first time something didn't suit you, you changed it. And if we go through the word of the Lord and we're just picking this and saying, well, I'll obey that, but I'm not going to obey that. We're doing the same thing. We're not really obeying because of our respect and feeling of authority for God. We're doing what we want to do, and we just do that because that's something that pleases us and fits into what we want in our lifestyle. And so we're going to do that, but change everything else. So again, I think if you just... Boil it down to what James trying to tell us is he's telling us everything God tells us is important. And we can't just pick and choose what we want it. Go back, if you would, for a moment, though, to the book of James in the second chapter. And just notice, if you would, exactly what James has said immediately before the verses we read. He starts in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. He says, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brethren, or beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who, who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. And so then he gives us our text. It would seem to me that James is saying, here's something that you need to be aware of. You need to make sure that as Christians we don't show partiality based upon outward appearances or, or a man's possession. And he wants them to know that this is important and that you can't 
pick up some of God's word and say, well, yeah, I, I understand that. Uh, maybe, for instance, in, in James 3, he talks about the speech. He, he wants them to know you can't just say, well, yeah, I, I understand the importance of speech, but uh, this partiality thing, I don't really understand it, so I'm not going to worry about keeping it. And James is trying to say, this is from God. And we have no right as Christians to, to show partiality based upon a person's possession or his outward appearances. In fact, if you look more in the book of James, it seems to me like James is spending a lot of time trying to tell people that it's important that we hear the word and we do it. Go back for just a moment to the book of James in the first chapter. And you may remember in chapter 1 he talks about temptations and how that all temptations, uh, none of them come from God, they come from the devil, and, and we need to overcome those. And then if you look down at verse 21, he says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And so he's trying to get us to understand, I'm telling you these things, and it's important that you be a doer of these things. In fact, look down a little further to verse 27. He says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their troubles, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. It seems to me that he's trying again to say, You've got to be doers of the word. That if you really want to be religious, as he's talking about here, you want your religious to be undefiled and pure, then you have to do this. You have to actually visit widows and, and orphans, and you have to keep yourself unspotted from the world. That it's not just words, it's things that we have to attend to and do. You look over, as we mentioned, chapter 3, he talks about the tongue. Most of us are familiar with that. He wants us to understand that keeping our tongue as a Christian is important. And we can't just not pay attention to it and say, well, it's just hard to, to buffet my body or to buffet my tongue and to control my mouth. He says, no, this is something we've got to do. And he says, you don't bring sweet things or a vine doesn't bring sweet fruit and then some bitter weed at the same time or the water is not bitter and sweet at the same time. It's one or the other. And he's trying to get us to see we can't just say, okay, I'll visit the widows and the orphans, but I'm not going to keep my tongue. Or you look at chapter 4 and it looks like he's talking a lot about worldliness, saying that you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot attain, you fight wars. And then we go on and say, adulterers and adulteresses. I understand it as the text is really, you're adulterers. And that what he's really doing is, he's looking at us as if though we're married to Christ, but here's people that are being unfaithful in their love to Christ and to God by doing all these other things that he's talking about. And he's again trying to, Tell us this is important, that we can't just not have a true affection to God and, and make ourselves right in God's sight. In chapter 5, he would go even a little further again and, and talk about, come now you rich, weep and, 
and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. And he seems to be talking about here are some people that care more for riches than what they ought to. In fact, you, you look at uh, verse 4. He says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord. Here's somebody that's professing to be a Christian and cares so much about money that they are willing to defraud other people, people that work for them. And he says, this cries out to the Lord. And again, he's saying, you can't just say, I'm going to keep my tongue and, and be willing to defraud somebody else. You can't just ignore the tongue as, because you're not defrauding somebody else. He's trying to show us that in all of these things, that, that they all matter. That all of them are things that God have given to us and to tell us this is what we need to do. And we can't just set aside any of the commandments of God and expect to be pleasing to God. Well, let's take that principle for a moment about just uh, really watching the word of the Lord and, and making sure that we realize this comes from God and we have to, to keep it and we can't just set aside some part of it. And let's talk about the attitude of some people at this time. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, give me the man, but not the plan? Basically, what they're saying is, I don't mind owning Christ and, and saying I'm a Christian or whatever it is, but, but I don't think that I want to submit myself to all of the commandments that God has given. But we can't do that. Look, if you would, for a moment, go back to the book of Acts in the second chapter for a moment. Look at Acts, the second chapter. And you recall, this is the first Pentecost after the crucifixion of Jesus and the apostles were gathered in Jerusalem waiting for the Spirit to fall upon them, and it does. And so they begin to tell, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that just means you can be saved by turning to the Lord. And so then he begins to preach about Jesus. Look at verse 22, if you would. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested by God to you by the miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then he, he says this fulfilled certain prophecies that David gave, and, and he quotes those prophecies. And so he, he applies those prophecies to, to Jesus, saying, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us this day, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, whom God has raised up, of which you are all witness, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you do now see and hear. And then again, he'll quote from David a little bit. 
verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What I want you to see at this time is that here's the first gospel sermon that we have after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And Peter is preaching the man. He's preaching that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he's preaching the man, all right. But notice what happens then. When he has been preached as the Christ, the Son of the living God, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the hearts and said by, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises unto you and to your children, to all that are far off, as many as the Lord your God will call He exhorted with other words, and then in verse 42 says, as many as were saved, the Lord added to the church. Is that still the man, or is that the plan? Or did Peter preach Jesus as Lord in Christ, and when they cry out, what does this mean? What should I be doing? He in turn said, here's what you need to do. You need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that you can be saved and so he can add you to the church. That's the man, but it's also the plan. And my question is, how do we say, well, we need to know the man, but we don't need to know the plan? Look over, if you would, to the book of Acts in the 8th chapter for a moment. Acts 8. And you're familiar with with this. Uh, When you get down to about verse 35, and you're, you're talking about the Philippian, or excuse me, the Ethiopian unit. And he's been to worship in Jerusalem and worshiped according to the way that he knew, according to the law. And he's going back reading Isaiah. And God arranges Philip to be there. And the eunuch, he asked the the eunuch if he understood what he read. And the eunuch answered and said, how can I except somebody explain it to me? And so Philip joins himself to the chariot. And notice verse 35, it says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at the Scripture, talking about Isaiah, preached Jesus to him. I would think if you're preaching Jesus to somebody, you're talking about the plan, or excuse me, the person. And so here's Philip now preaching, and he's preaching the person. But that's not all that he preaches. We read, and he says, Now he went a little down the road And they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, Well, if you believe, you can. And he said, I believe. And so they baptized him. And so he's gone again from preaching the man to the plan. And so how can we decide, Well, I need to know about the man, but I don't really need to know about the plan. When they preached the man, it came about where they preached the plan too. And think about this for a moment. We've just pointed out in preaching the man that Peter preached Jesus as Lord and Christ. And apparently Philip did too. What does that mean to us, to preach him as Lord? Well, it means that you do whatever he said do. That if he's Lord, he's master. And Jesus himself said one time, why do you... Say, Lord, Lord to me, and then do not the things that I say. 
And so the idea or the point that I want you to see is you can't just preach the man and not the plan. You have to preach all of it. And he is the man, he is the Christ, and that gives him the right to say, here's the plan that you need to obey. And if we understand that he's the Christ, that he's the Savior, and he's the only Savior, then we're willing to do what he said, and we're willing to obey him. And we can't just say, well, I'm going to accept part of this, but I'm not going to accept all of it. How can we decide that God has given us all of this, but we don't need all of it, or some of it's just not really applicable to us? The second thing I'd I'd think about, you hear people sometimes talk about, well, I think the love is needed. That's really important. But we don't really need the commandment. I'll, I'll give myself to love, but, but I just don't think I need to have to give myself to all these commandments. Well, let me tell you that love certainly is important. If you can turn back over to Matthew, the 22nd chapter, you remember they challenged Jesus on this occasion by saying, what is the greatest commandment? And he answers in verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second, like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so there's no one disputing the idea that love is important. But how do we show that love? How do you discern love without doing the commandments? Turn over if you would. We just noticed that, yes, love for God is important. First And great commandment is to love God with all our heart and soul. But then look over to the book of 1 John and the 5th chapter in verse 3 and notice what John says on that occasion. He said, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. I think love is important. But how do we show that love? Well, John said, we do it by keeping the commandments of God. Even back in the book of John in the 15th chapter, Jesus has said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Love's important. But how can we separate that love of God from the commandments that he gives? We can't. And the same God that told us to love him is the God that says, you keep my commandments, this is the way that you love me. We talked about the second commandment, how that we uh, should love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, look over, if you would, to the book of Romans and the 13th chapter for a moment. Romans, the 13th chapter, and look down to verse 8. Paul says, Owe no one anything except love one another. So here's the same. It's important. Love is. He says, For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's what Jesus had said. Keep my, or that love God with all your heart, and then second, love your neighbor as yourself, and that all the, the law hangs on this. So uh, Paul echoes that and says, Love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. But then he says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. 
And if there be any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you're not just saying you just love and, and say you love, and that's, that's all it is. He's saying all of these commandments, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder, all of these are part of this love. And that you show your love to a neighbor by keeping the commandments of God. You have people sometimes that try hard to, to figure out how do you define love and how do you show love or what's the best way of showing love. I'll tell you the best way of showing love. It's by doing the commandments of God. And every one of God's commandments were written for the welfare of others. And we show our appreciation for them and our welfare or our interest in them by treating them as God has said. And none of us should be able to say, well, I think love is important, but I'm, I'm not too high on all of these commandments that God's given. No, the same God that said love gave these commandments and said, this is how you show love. Keeping my commandments or, or treating your neighbor as the law has said. And we have no right to try and parse it out and say, well, I'll do one and not the other. You ever heard someone say, well, I believe in heaven, but not hell. I would imagine if you looked online and tried to find a statistic for it, you'd find much more people believe in heaven than they do hell. And how is it that somebody can say, well, yeah, I believe in heaven, but I really just don't believe in hell. Well, the answer is they believe in the goodness of God but they don't want to take and believe in the, the severity of God. In the book of Romans, in the 11th chapter, Paul is, is talking about Jew and Gentile and trying to show how that both of them are accepted in. And, and he uses the illustration of, of a natural tree, and he, he's using that as the Jews. But he said some of the branches have been cut off because they disbelieved. And he talked about the wild olive tree, and that was the Gentiles. And he said they... They have been grafted into this natural olive tree because they believed. But he warned him, he said, but if you disbelieve, you too will be cast off also. And what he's trying to show is that it's not just the Jew or just the Gentile. It's those who, again, believe in the Lord and who follow his, his law that will be accepted by him. But I want you to look particularly at verse 22 for a moment. He said, therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. Just after he's talked about lopping off some natural branches because they didn't believe or, or grafting in some uh, of the unnatural branches because they believed and then even threatening to lop them off if they disbelieved. He said, therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. And so he, he says in that passage, God is both good and severe. How is it that some of us look at it and say, well, I'm going to accept heaven because I think God is good, but I'm not going to believe in hell because uh, that's just too severe. It amazes me that somebody can come up with that kind of position. Look back over, if you would, to the book of Matthew in the 25th chapter for a moment. Matthew 25, and look at verse 31. Matthew 25 and verse 31. And 
this is Jesus speaking, and he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all his holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goat. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say to those on his right hand, Come you, my blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he begins to tell them, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. But look on down, if you will, to verse 41. Just remember now that he's taken all of those that have been good and, and said, you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But now in the same discourse, he, in verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. Same thing, they just ignored him and didn't actually show love. And the end of it is in verse 46 when he says, And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now notice that. One verse talks about eternal punishment or hell and how some will be cast into hell. And that same, very same verse talks about the righteous who've been made righteous by God's Son, Jesus Christ, through His forgiveness and who have done acts of righteousness in, as serving Him. He says they go into eternal life. By what stretch of the imagination does one come in here and look at this verse and say, well, I believe in heaven, but I just can't believe in hell. The same God that said, I'll give them eternal life, said the others will receive eternal punishment. How do we take that and just say, well, one of it I, I believe, but the other one I disbelieve. Kind of like somebody just saying, well, I, I'm not going to commit adultery, but I have no qualms against committing murder. I'm just going to chop up the Word of God and, and put it like I want to. No, we can't do that. The same God that said that the wicked would be cast into hell is the same God that said we shall receive eternal life if we're faithful unto Him when He comes. Look at the book of James again in the second chapter and Let's talk about faith and works for a moment. Because you have people that are talking about how we need faith. But at the same time, they want to say, well, but we don't, we don't need works. And we don't have to do anything. All we need is faith. And James talks about this in the book of uh, James in the second chapter and beginning in verse 14. He says, what does it profit, my brother, if someone say he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food and one of you say to, the, say to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Now that's an, really an illustration just saying, what did that profit them? And his point still is about faith. He says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. If you see somebody in need and you don't give them anything, that didn't help them is the idea. And now he's saying, faith also by itself, 
Uh, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. It doesn't do anything. He says, somebody will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. That's the only way that we can show our faith is by our works, he says. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? Think back to the book of Romans from the fourth chapter and, and you remember he's talking about how we are made righteous through forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And then he comes down to chapter four and he's illustrating this. And he says, Abraham was justified by faith, not by his works, meaning he didn't do enough works to earn salvation. He's not saying Abraham didn't have to do something to show his faith. He's just saying he didn't earn his faith, that he had sinned. It wasn't because he was so good that God owed him salvation. And you look down to chapter that same chapter in about verse 6, and he does the same thing with David. He says, he was saved by faith. Why? Because God didn't impute his sins, he forgave them. And so he's not saying that we don't have to do something, he's just saying that it's faith that saves us, our faith is counted as righteousness for us, but we have to do something to show our faith. And so it is that you you see in Acts 2 that he tells them you need to obey, you need to repent, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or you see in Acts 8 again that he says, here's water. What does hinder me to be baptized? He says, if you believe, you can. And so he's baptized. This is them demonstrating and showing their faith, that they have that faith. And Paul says, then and I saith unto me, why tarry thou rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. They are going to show their faith. And when they do that, they have to, they're, they're going to be saved. They're going to be washed of their sins. And so it doesn't make any difference, really, whether we're talking about the non-Christian and he has to show his faith, or if we're talking about James, where he's really talking about Christian, and he's saying, if we've got the faith, we're going to have to show works. If we really believe God and all that he's saying, we're going to be working. And just because we work some doesn't mean we've earned our salvation, and it doesn't mean that we have destroyed salvation by grace. I had a lengthy exchange with somebody on email for a time, and and he was arguing that we couldn't do anything. If we did anything for salvation, then our salvation was no good. And I asked him on the occasion, I said, what about the blind man in John 9? I said, who healed him? Was it Jesus, or did he heal himself? And the first exchange we had after that, he didn't answer. And I wrote him back and I said, hey, you skipped this. Who healed the man? Jesus or himself? And he said, well, obviously Jesus did. If the blind man could heal himself, he would have done it long ago. I said, well, but he still had to go wash. And if you can see that he had to go wash in the pool of Siloam in order to be healed by Jesus, you see that we need to be washed in water to be cleansed of our sins by Jesus. 
and that that doesn't do away with grace. I don't imagine that blind man went around saying, look what I've done. In fact, I know from the text that he said, the Lord has done it. And so also when we baptize somebody, that's not them earning their salvation, but it is them showing their faith and doing what God said do. And so also in our life as Christians, we need to remember what James is teaching and remember that we have to be working or else our faith doesn't show. Have you stumbled over the word? James said that these people that would say, well, I haven't committed adultery, but it's okay to murder. He said, they've stumbled over the law. Have you stumbled over the law? Have you looked at the law and decided, well, yeah, I need to be doing this, but I'm not really interested in that. James's purpose in James 2 and 10 is to say, we can't pick and choose. We've just got to do everything that the Lord says and be trying to do it all. And when we fall short, we go and ask for forgiveness. And so make sure you don't stumble over the law. God's gracious. As long as we're trying and living to, like he tells us to and seeking Christ is for cleansing when we fall short, he's willing to forgive us. But we can't be hard-hearted and just say, well, I don't care. Or we can't live in our sins and just not get rid of them. We have to tend to our sins. So if you're here this evening and you stumbled over the law some way, you, you've been doing some things but not all things, and you know you're not doing them, but you just don't care, or you just keep ignoring them, now's the time to make things right. Repent of your sins, be baptized if you haven't done that. And if you have done that, but you haven't been keeping the law, I remind you, James is written to Christians. It's a problem with Christians, too. And so if you haven't been keeping God's law, then repent of it, confess it, and be saved. If you're subject to the invitation, we'd invite you to come as together we stand and sing. On bended knee, I come.